without these I can't read my own writing. So let's see, uh, we covered a little bit of history last week, um, some prehistory even, before the written word and how the written word came into being in history. So we want to look at uh, the real authors of the Bible, both our heavenly author and the human authors, and uh, how this thing we call inspiration fit in between our heavenly father and the uh, earthly authors of his holy word. And scripture cannot be properly understood unless we consider this dual-sided authorship. It is not entirely accurate to say that the Bible is a human witness to divine revelation. The Bible is also God's witness to himself. To say that scripture is partly the word of God and partly the word of humans is also an inadequate description. What we hope to discover today is that the Bible is entirely and completely the word of God and also the words of the human authors. It is important for us to have a balanced view of scripture. So how does the Christian community maintain this balance? How can we affirm that scripture is the inspired word of God when it is a collection of books by human authors? Can the words of the Bible be identified with the word of God? Is just some of the Bible God's word, or can it be affirmed for the entire Bible? How is it possible that the Bible can be both the word of God and at the same time a human composition? Well, for 2,000 years, the church has presupposed the divine character of Scripture and has based all of our theology, teaching, and preaching on this fact. The New Testament writers speak of the Old Testament as divine, as seen in these examples. In Acts 4, 24-26, it says, When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And in Romans 9:17. Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And in Galatians 3, 8, again, Paul said, <coughs> excuse me, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's God speaking to Abraham. Because the apostles' writings have divine origin and content, the New Testament scripture can be described as certain. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it 
as to a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. The prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I highlighted this text because it is the key to answering the questions in that second paragraph above. How does the Christian community maintain this balance? It, it tells you how the prophets were, uh, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the word can be described as trustworthy. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's Paul speaking in 1 Timothy 1.15. And in 2 Timothy 2.11 he says, Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. The scriptures can be described as confirmed. In Hebrews 2.3 uh, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And the scriptures can be described as eternal. In 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, Peter says, For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The primary witness in the Bible, about the Bible, as to its inspired source, is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scholar David S. Dockery, in his book Christian Scripture, summed up the act of inspiration in this manner. God's Spirit is involved both in revealing specific messages to the prophets. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, verses 1 through 9, and I'm going to look that up and read it. I should have bookmarked this. It was Jeremiah uh, 1, 1 through 9. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, 
son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I pointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak, I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. So that's uh, God's spirit is involved in both revealing specific messages, that's what this Jeremiah is all about, and in guiding the authors to the historical sections in their research, uh, Luke uh, 1, 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So here Luke, who is a Gentile physician, an educated man of the times, uh, educated in universities of the time, uh, understands the human body from dissecting humans and taking notes, exploring um, a man who understands how to do research. Uh, and this tells how the Holy Spirit has led Luke to research the history of Jesus in such a manner that it has been handed down to us as one of the Gospels. And Luke was not a follower of Christ who um, went with Jesus during his three years on earth. He, came, he became a Christian, one of the first Gentile Christians in history. So uh, anyway, it's not outside the view of inspiration then to include the literary processes that take place on the human level behind scripture. Summarizing the inclusiveness of inspiration, we can say that it encompasses the collection of information from witnesses, the use of written sources, the writing of and editing of such information, the composition of spontaneous letters the committing to write, writing of prophetic messages, the collecting of the various documents together, and so on. 
At the same time, however, on the divine level, we can assert that the spirit who moved on the face of the waters at creation was active in the whole process, so that the Bible can be regarded as both the words of men and the word of God. So I have a question for you. At what point in history do you think God began inspiring the people in the Bible? The very beginning. That's a very good answer. I, you know, he was in the garden with Adam and Eve. And uh, at the, when they were ejected from the garden, they had children and began telling their history to their children and then their children we're going to see in a few minutes uh, as we, when we look at uh, genealogies. Let's look at Genesis 5. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to give you an idea of something. I, there's a uh, unattached handout included with... The, the, it was an afterthought this last Monday after I made all of these copies and stapled them together and went home and an idea for illustrative purposes popped into my head. And so, uh, let's see, uh, in Genesis 5 it says, this is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years. Then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. So this phrase keeps popping up. So my question was, in my own head, I had to ask, what moved these people. You remember last week we talked about how when we were uh, shepherds and herdsmen, when we were um, hunters and gatherers, we all sat around the campfire and told stories and those stories got handed down from generation to generation and each generation would add their own portion to what their fathers had handed down to them. This was before writing had been invented. So this was the only way for all of this uh, history to be passed down was around the campfires. And so if you look on this handout called the Genealogy Addendum, At the top of this family tree, you see Adam. 
in bold letters. And then directly below Adam's name is Seth. And those are my invented other sons and daughters there on the same level as Seth. And then directly below Enosh is some more sons and daughters that Enosh had. And then Kenan and his sons and daughters. If we went from Adam to Seth and then down on Enosh's line and went to Son on the left side of the word Enosh, we would have gone in a completely different direction in this family tree, right? Or if we went as far as, say, Methuselah and the farthest son on the right of his branch there, that son, if we started at that point and followed his family tree, we would have lost all of Lamech and Noah and Shem and those that followed. Why are these particular individuals in this particular branch there? How did Moses know this was the important for you and me and for God, this is the important family tree line to write down in Genesis. Noah wrote Genesis. I'm speculating here because I'm not that old. No, no, I mean, uh, Moses wrote Genesis. And I wasn't an eyewitness to it. I'm speculating that he did all of his writing of the Pentateuch during that 40 years that they were in the wilderness and all of those events happened uh, that were recorded there and, and his dealings with God on the mountain and everything. But <clears throat> he had 40 years to interview the 12 tribes of Israel and to gather their histories. Someone, somewhere moved him to put this history in the Bible. And we can only point to one. <laughs> Jeannie, would you like to take a stab? <laughs> this was a glorious inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It just jumped out at me how this God inspired Moses because this is the only line that is important to God and to you and to me. Because as we will eventually see, there are some other genealogies that point to the one Messiah. And you may remember uh, when we talked about uh, the Bible prophecies and the 300 uh, requirements of the Messiah and how the odds were so uh, tremendous that one person, I think we, I guessed again that since, the, since Adam there have been about 20 billion humans born on earth. And uh, with only 30 inputs to this logical requirement, 
the odds are 65 billion plus to one that any one person would have been the Messiah. But with 30 qualifications necessary, the odds are so great that there are 104 zeros on the number. And still, 2,000 years ago, one person met those requirements, all 300 of them. So what did I say here after the family tree? The sons and daughters are there for illustration purposes in order to show the family tree aspect of Genesis 5. Notice the names in bold letters that they are lined up to son below his father. Seth is Adam's son and Enosh is Seth's son, etc. <clears throat> These generations lived before writing had been invented. The genealogies were handed down from gener generation to generation verbally, as I shared with you last week. By the way, um, most civilizations did this same thing, you know, sat around the campfires and told their stories. If you're a member of Ancestry.com or you have done any you have any interest in your own ancestry? I worked with a cousin about 20 years ago to see how far back we could go with our family line. And it goes to England and Scotland. Can't be more than 300 years ago. That's as far back as we could find records that connected to our family tree. A mere 300 years. And... Let's see. Uh, I think, I could be mistaken on this, but I think the uh, some scholars somewhere calculated 5,700 years from Adam to Jesus. And they kept this family line for 5,700 years. Now, the Egyptians kept the family line of the pharaohs for a thousand years. I don't know how long. I'm not an Egyptian scholar. The Chinese kept the family line of their uh, emperors for a thousand, fifteen hundred years. I don't know. And, and then that got lost. Uh, and most families and most of those who sat around the campfires you know, recited their lineages and their stories for a few hundred years and poof, it just got lost to history. So to me, I see an amazing hand of God in the preservation of Jesus' line all the way back to Adam. And uh, we've already answered the question, what is the importance of this specific lineage? And uh, how is it that Moses could record this one line of the Hebrew nation's genealogy in Genesis? How is it that the names of the other siblings were not recorded, but listed only as other sons and daughters? I don't know, except that it has to be the Holy Spirit at work. And his, it, that it's part of his plan 
we keep coming back to this word plan and it seems to encompass a lot more detail than humanly imaginable certainly humanly possible but his hand was in every story every life every event recorded in the Bible uh, I list for you uh, Chronicles uh, chapters 1 through 9 that list genealogies of the early tribes of Israel and I'm not going to read Chronicles 1 through 9 tonight the genealogies of Matthew 1 through what Matthew 1 1 through 16 and Luke 3 23 to 38 follow Jesus lineage all the way back to Adam and Paul sums up the connection between Adam and Jesus and the genealogies in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Praise God. And so we see how the Holy Spirit, how we, and we see how the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was involved in the recording of God's plan from Adam, the first man in Genesis, through Jesus our Lord in the Gospels and on, to, on into the Apostles' witness in the New Testament. So then we'll come back here and look at... Uh, let's see, where were we? Oh yes, uh, we're at the on the, what the second page uh, at the Gospels. Oh, just above that, the first eight chapters of the Bible tell us what important fact that continues to this day, and that can be found. The answer can be found in Genesis eight verses twenty to twenty-one. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground 
because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So it is our sinfulness that is revealed in those first eight chapters and the reason for the plan in the first place. So now we come to the Gospels. There were many other Gospel stories written than the four that are included in the Bible. Many of them were lost during the imperial persecutions of the first three centuries of the Christian era. We believe that the Gospels that survived did so because of God's providence and protection. God knew that these Gospels would be sufficient to convey his word to all future generations. A different author wrote each Gospel, and each one gives a different perspective on the life of Christ. I like to think of a boxing match in Las Vegas between a guy from the ghettos in New York and another guy from Puerto Rico. It's common boxing history there. So uh, you got to have newspaper reporters and TV cameras. Of course, since it's in Las Vegas, you're going to have writers and cameramen and reporters from Vegas. Since one of the boxers is from New York, you're going to have a crew from New York and another, another crew from Puerto Rico, where one of the boxers is from. And Vegas is about a two and a half, three hour drive. It's been so long since I did that drive, I've forgotten how long, far it is. But it's about two and a half, three hour drive from LA. And you can bet that there would be a crew there from LA. And each of these news crews has a different interest in it, a different perspective on this boxing match. They're, the, you know, the one from New York wants to tell the story of the boxer from New York and the same with the one from Puerto Rico. And there will be other reasons, you know, local for L.A. and Nevada. Well, the authors of the Gospels were essentially like-minded. They had their own personal interests in the part of Jesus' life that they recorded. A different author wrote each Gospel and each one gives a different perspective on the life of Christ. Matthew was a tax collector, Luke a physician, John a fisherman, and we don't know what Mark's occupation was, but in Mark 14.51, the author may have been describing his own personal experience, which means that young Mark may have spent his entire life as a minister of the Lord. Mark 14.51 and this is 
on the Mount of Olives when Jesus is being arrested. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And a lot of people think that because Mark does not identify that young man, it may have been Mark himself. In the same way that uh, John describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved, but he never says, it's me, you know. So, uh, where were we? Mark. Um, Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus. Mark was a companion of Peter. His gospel contains what he had heard Peter tell again and again. Luke was a companion of Paul. His gospel contains what he heard Paul preach from one end of the Roman Empire to the other, which he then verified by his own investigation. The four Gospels were ultimately intended for all mankind, but each was originally written for a more specific audience. Matthew's Gospel, it is thought, may have been written for the church in Jerusalem. Mark may have intended his book for the church in Rome. Luke wrote his gospel for an individual named Theophilus who may have been a high official in the Roman government. And John's gospel is thought to have been intended originally for the church in Ephesus. With these four gospels, we have four different perspectives on the man Jesus, how he lived and what he said and did. Matthew, writing for Jewish Christians, presents Jesus the Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Mark stresses action rather than teaching. He presents Jesus the Wonderful, whose rejection, suffering, and death were an essential part of his mission. Luke presents Jesus the Son of Man, who brings salvation by identifying with humanity in all its weakness. He heals the sick and seeks out those rejected by society. And John shows Jesus the Son of God. He begins with Jesus' pre-existence and focuses on the unity between Jesus and God, his Father. Mark was most likely the first gospel to be written. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are related literarily. Many passages have nearly the same wording or order of events. From the time of Augustine, it was thought that the order of composition was Matthew, Mark, Luke. But in the last 200 years, the majority of scholars have come to the conclusion that Mark was first, and Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source. There are also 250 verses of Jesus' sayings that are shared by Matthew and Luke, but not found in Mark. So most scholars believe that they both use a common source, perhaps oral, <coughs> referred to as Q from the German Quella, which means source. 
in the writings of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can actually see and hear the humanity of the individual office. Jeremiah has been called the weeping prophet. Let's look at Jeremiah 9.1 Jeremiah 9.1 Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. John the Apostle, a fisherman, was noted for his use of contrasting figures. <coughs> Pardon me. Light and darkness, life and death, truth and lies, love and hate. First John, he asserts himself with the authority of an elder. Paul is often thought of as joyful and rejoicing, as in Romans 15, 32, 16, 19, and Philippians 4, 4. And loving in 1 Corinthians 13, which Pastor studied with us for nine weeks, ten weeks. Um, Paul's teaching us about love. Yet in Galatians, we see a different, more human side of Paul. There's a sense of irritation, perhaps even some anger in his writing when he speaks to those Christians who want to continue to follow some of the Old Testament ceremonial practices, those who are called Judaizers. The same apostle who says, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, tells the Galatian church, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And if that was not enough, he immediately repeats it. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And then in chapter 5, verse 2 and following, we see a very adamant Paul say, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Those are very strong words, human words. Yet they're inspired words 
coming from the Holy Spirit that takes advantage of the individual personalities of the human writers of his word. Can we humans add anything to the simple... This is a kind of an aside. I drifted a little bit here. Um, following up on Paul's teachings. Can we humans add anything to the simple gospel message of the Bible to make it better than it is? Are we better at setting ourselves free from sin than what Christ did and what Paul teaches? I don't think so. The Judaizers couldn't and neither can we. In spite of the fact that our cultural background and environment have radically changed since the times in which the Bible was written, the human condition has not changed. It is the human condition, our sinful nature, to which the Bible speaks, even 2,000 years after the last epistle was written. Since we can now say that, we understand that Scripture is divinely inspired and proclaims the saving acts of God in history. From Scripture... We understand, um, from Scripture we learn how sinful humans are to approach a holy God and how we are to live in relationship to the life-giving Spirit of God. And these lessons are the same for us today as they were for those who lived in biblical times. I've got to pondering all of this information which tells me how all-encompassing the Holy Spirit's influence was on the collection of all of this material. The detail is amazing. And the Holy Spirit guided these men for centuries with this idea of putting together this precious book. And it just will never cease to amaze me. Um, which made me think to myself, there's got to be a couple other words that I as a human, how would you put this? If God were just an everyday guy who did all of these things for the love of his fellow man, I'm not talking about Jesus, you know, God on earth, I'm mean if God were just like you and me, not connected with God, but if he loved us that much that he put together a book that he sent his only begotten son, a shrink would look at him and call him obsessive, intense, with one thing. He loves us that much. So obsessed that he had all of these guys do his will to create this message of love to you and me. And I'm just, I'm first I'm thankful for it. And I'm just amazed at his power to inspire people. And I pray tonight that he inspires you and that you 
find a love as intense for him as his love is for you.